Heavenly Father, we thank you for your tremendous love and amazing grace. So we are utterly indebted to you and the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross for washing us of our sins, removing our guilt, saving from the bondage of sin, and delivering us from this realm of evil and making us your own, united with Christ for an eternity that awaits us, Lord, and, and the mission that we must fulfill in this life. Lord, we are indebted to you, your grace and your sovereignty. Help us to never, ever forget that, Lord that all things are by your grace. And if we would simply submit to that and humble ourselves, we will have life. We will have true liberty and true sense of fulfillment and meaning in this life. Father, today we are going to talk about grace and we're going to talk about the resurrection hope. And I pray that you would visit us in a very special way by your abiding presence of your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would touch not only our minds, but our hearts and our lives. And we may be stirred to be even more transformed into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would set no other models, no idols, just Jesus, your Son, that you have given to us to be that epitome of godliness and holiness that we are to imitate. So Lord, we ask that you would visit us in a, a very gracious way today by the presence of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today, let us greet one another with uh, these two words. One is Hebrew word, Shalom. And another is a Greek word, charis, that is the term for grace. Okay? Peace of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us greet one another with shalom and charis. For the past few weeks, I've been speaking on the theme of the gifts of the Holy Spirit and how the gifts are to be properly used in the context of the body of Christ. And we have dealt with that in this lengthy section from chapters 12 to 14. But today, in this one chapter, chapter 15, we're going to begin a whole new series of messages on the theme of resurrection. Now, why is the concept of resurrection so important in our Christian life? I will expound on that in the coming weeks, but I'm going to take a number of weeks to speak on the theme of resurrection, that is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the future resurrection that awaits us, the believers in Christ. And we're going to realize the implication, great implication of the resurrection for us in the present and our future hope. And the text for today is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 to 11. Let's read this text together. 
Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and that is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Amen. Amen. So I would like to take this text and just systematically go through it verse by verse and attempt to explain to you how important the gospel is and how crucial it is for us to lay all our faith on this truth of the gospel and how this gospel is based upon the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Actually based upon the eyewitnesses who acknowledge the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally I would like to talk about how everything really is by the grace of God and how this grace has such a transformative effect upon our lives. So let us begin with verse 1. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Paul is talking about the gospel, the good news. In Greek is euangelion. What did he mean by the gospel? And we know that all throughout Paul's writings, not only here in 1 Corinthians, but in other letters, he's always talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that person was engaged in certain works which was crucial for our salvation. And so when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we are primarily thinking about His incarnation and which led to His death on the cross, his crucifixion. And we know from the earlier chapters, especially in chapters 1 and 2, that Paul talked about the essential message of the cross, that he is devoted to preach Christ crucified. And he said, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so we know that the crucifixion is important, the cross is important. But what we're going to learn in this chapter 15 is that resurrection is as important. Why? Because if you believe that Jesus died on the cross for us and that has a redemptive value for us, then that has to be vindicated. 
He can't just end in death. He can't just end in barrier and decaying bodily. He has to rise to prove that he is exactly who he claimed that he was. He is the Son of God who has the power over death, power of all the things that could hold him down here on earth. And he will rise victoriously. And so I will expound on this whole dynamic of resurrection in the coming days. But just know that when Paul is talking about the gospel, he's talking about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about primarily this gospel of the person of Jesus Christ is demonstrated on the cross and vindicated by the event of the resurrection. And that's why he says, this gospel that I preach, you have received, paralambano, received. And this reception has to do with the oral tradition that was passed down generation after generation by the original witnesses. Of course, this is the first generation. This is the very generation. Many of them have actually witnessed Jesus. But this generation links to the generations to come all the way down to the 21st century generation, us. And we are receiving the same tradition. And he used a similar term when he talked about the tradition of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, you remember I talked about how that was an oral tradition that he had received. Now, where did he receive this? Paul is saying, this is not my words. This is not me making up a, a new tradition. This is not a Pauline tradition. This is a tradition that comes from the actual eyewitnesses who have witnessed Jesus in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Who are these? These are the other apostles. So in Galatians, he especially talks about how he visited Jerusalem and dialogued with Peter and James and other apostles. Because apparently Peter and James were the leaders of that body during that time. And so he's, he's saying that he got a download regarding the life of Jesus and the way he died and the way he rose. Because Paul did not witness that. He may not even ever even come close to seeing Jesus himself. He might have, but it meant nothing to him because he was anti-Christian. We need to realize that the letter of 1 Corinthians was written in the early 50s. And so this is very, very close to the actual event of Jesus' resurrection. Something like 20 years. So Paul is interact with all these people who might have actually witnessed Jesus up close, intimately like his apostles, and from a distance. As many people have been indebted to the ministry of Jesus. But what we also see is that Paul did not just accept the essence of the gospel from them. He also expounded on the gospel. He had his own exposition on the gospel. And he claims, according to Galatians 1 and Ephesians 3, that he received this by direct revelation. 
And this is very important too, that we receive the tradition, we receive the basic doctrines, but we must also expound that. We got to make it ours. It's got to be our own flesh and bones. And Paul says, this is what I preach, this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ based upon his crucifixion and resurrection. And you have received this, which is the apostolic tradition, which I am now expounding to you. And on this basis, you're taking your stand. And this is so important that we ground our faith on the solid gospel tradition based upon the actual eyewitness testimonies. This is not some historical, legendary myth. This can be validated if we go back to those eyewitnesses. And that's exactly what the four gospels record. And that's what the letters of the apostles like Paul and Peter and James What these letters claim is that Jesus' death and resurrection are for real. That the person of Jesus is real. And encountering this person of Jesus, encountering and witnessing his death and resurrection have transformed them to a point that they are willing to lay their lives for this cause. And in verse 2, Paul says, By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. You see, the salvation comes by embracing the gospel, that is, embracing the person of Jesus Christ, embracing the truth of His death and resurrection, which establishes redemptive basis for all of us. But, Paul does place a condition here. He says, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, you are saved by the gospel. But you must hold firmly to this gospel to the very end. And some people read this saying, well, does this mean we got to live righteously? We got to have this kind of special faith and application of the faith? In order to qualify to receive the gospel, no, no, no. We know from Paul's other writings that salvation is only by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we receive it by faith. We cannot add anything to this. We cannot add anything of our righteousness, our merits. We cannot credit ourselves to receive salvation. But what Paul is saying is this, if you are truly saved by this gospel, by embracing this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you must, to the very end, hold firmly to this truth and this reality. You can't in the middle of your Christian life say, oh, oh forget Jesus, I, I don't know, maybe that I made a mistake or I don't know, you know, I thought God promised me the power to overcome all kinds of obstacles and hindrances and temptations and I seem to be failing out, I'm going to bail out. You can't do that. Because once you do that, you backslide, then your whole salvation may be questionable. Not that God saves you because of your righteousness, but if you're truly saved in Christ, 
then you should be able to hold firmly to the very, very end. Yet there are people who seemingly do not seem to operate that way. There are people who backslide, people who sin big time, they turn their back on Jesus. What about these people? Only thing I can say about these people is that their actual salvation originally is questionable. A case in point would be someone like Bob Dylan long ago, you know, the great pop singer, or rather great ballad singer, Bob Dylan. I really appreciate his music a lot. He's deep and profound in so many ways, if you listen to his lyrics. And I was really excited one time when he actually claimed that he was saved. And then he started, you know, cranking out all these compositions, music. That's talking about the gospel, that's talking about Jesus and his allegiance to Jesus. And then, a number of years later, he backslides radically. And since then, I haven't heard anything about his allegiance to Jesus. What about someone like Bob Dylan? Well, I guess the question that we have to ask is, was he saved in the first place? He may be, we don't know. But then the question is, if he was truly saved, then why has he turned his back on Jesus or have basically dropped his faith? I can't answer that. Only thing is that Bob Dylan has to answer to Jesus Christ on the last day. So this is what Paul is saying once again in verse 2. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. So in this statement, there is no contradiction to the truth that our salvation is purely by grace through faith. We cannot work for salvation. We cannot gain merits through any of our own righteousness. But if our faith falters to the degree that we do not hold securely unto this gospel truth, then it may be a sign that we have not truly been saved in the first place. In other words, our faith is useless unless we can firmly believe in the truth and the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection for us. Because this is the redemption for us. And if we cannot believe that this is the truth, and because of this truth we are being saved, then how can we be assured of our salvation? Let's move on to verse 3 and 4. For what I received, I passed unto you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he uses the same word or that concept of him having received that tradition. And he's simply passing it down to the Corinthian church. And here the important thing is according to the scriptures. This has been prophesied in the scriptures. This has been foreshadowed in the scriptures. And the scriptures of those days was the Old Testament. The letters are being written now. The gospel is being written. But it hasn't been completed. It hasn't been packaged as what we call canon. 
But Paul says, according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins. And according to the scriptures, he was raised on the third day. He's talking about the factual event of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is clearly confirmed by or grounded in the scripture. But this is the important thing. He, he has this expression, he was buried. He died, he was buried, he was raised. And we may simply see that as just a sequence of events that naturally happens. But many theologians believe that when he clearly mentions the fact that he was buried, Paul is intending that statement to confirm the fact that he had died and the fact that he has risen. How? Well, first of all, if Jesus was buried, then he must have died. It's not just a, an idea or a concept or imagination in the minds of the people. I think we saw him die. No, he died, and there's a barrier spot, there's a tomb, there was a stone that rolled over and, and blocked the entrance. We have witnessed his dead body. Secondly, his burial would also mean that his body had to be reanimated in order for resurrection to happen. That means, wow, that body is important. So resurrection is resurrection of that body. Somehow that body was reanimated, not just resuscitated, but transformed. And thirdly, his burial would mean that after his resurrection, there must have been the evidence of an empty tomb. There's a, an empty tomb somewhere in which Jesus was buried, but now he's resurrected. And the stone has been rolled away. And if, if in Paul's days, if someone were to ask, where is that tomb? I think they could have found that tomb. But what Paul is trying to say is the scripture has already prophesied about this matter. The scripture is actually a foreshadowing of the appearance of Jesus the Messiah and his death and his resurrection. But more, people have actually witnessed Jesus Christ. They have actually seen him dying on the cross. They have actually seen his resurrection appearance. And that's why he goes on in a lengthy way, in verses 5 to 8, and says, And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, apparently he's talking about twelve apostles, of course you have to minus one, that is Judas Iscariot, who committed suicide. Take him out. But still the term, the twelve, was very pronounced, and they had to replace Judas with, with Matthias. But usually this group, after Judas' death, is known as the eleven. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Why is this important that Paul mentions 500 people? He's saying this is not an isolated event, just a few people who are close to him. That could be very biased. But he's saying 500 people saw that. They couldn't all have disappeared. There are many of them are living. They are living witnesses today. Go talk to them if you must. And then he appeared to James, and that is the brother of Jesus. Apparently this is not talking about to 12, 
He's talking about James. We have James, son of Zebedee, James, the son of Artheus. This is not one of those James. This is James, the brother of Jesus, who wrote one of the letters in the New Testament. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So he's saying, Jesus, his resurrection appearance was witnessed by the 12 apostles. And 500 of his disciples and others that, who were invited to witness the very appearance of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. But he mentions three of them specifically. He mentions Cephas, that is Peter. Why did he mention Peter? Why didn't he mention James and John? They were close to Jesus as well. And we asked the question, why Peter? And he also appeared to James. Why mention James? And then, of course, finally, Paul. What's the common denominator here? Why, why these three? If you meditate very carefully, these three are those who really needed for Jesus to appear to them. Because apart from Jesus appearing to them, they would be damned. Peter denied Jesus three times. This disciple who hung around Jesus for three years denied Jesus three times. He saw himself no better than Judas Iscariot, perhaps. He really needed to see Jesus. He really needed a second chance. He really needed to be affirmed by Jesus and given another chance to make amends, to reconfirm his allegiance to Jesus. What about James? You may recall that none of the siblings of Jesus, and Jesus had, I think, four brothers and uh, two sisters at least. None of them embraced Jesus during his lifetime. I don't know whether that began from his early childhood on. You know, Jesus did mention a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Maybe it was very difficult for them to believe because they were all half-brothers and half-sisters. Jesus is born of Mary, yes, but he didn't have an earthly father. And so that was a unique situation, and that can cause some kind of sibling rivalry. That can cause misunderstandings. And Jesus being so perfect and so adored by their mother, receiving all this special attention, that may have contributed to this, but none of the siblings fully embraced Jesus Christ like the, the way the apostles did. And James was one of them. But guess what? After Jesus appeared to James, he appeared to his mother Mary, he appeared to all his siblings. The Bible doesn't clearly say, but I believe that all the siblings came to the Lord after that. And James is that representative. And he became later, actually, we don't know whether he became an apostle, but he was like highest 
highly regarded among the apostles. He became the leader of the Jerusalem church, the first church that was ever established. Brother of Jesus became the leader, not any of the twelve. And so James needed that affirmation. Actually, James needed to completely remove himself from unbelief and repent big time and embrace his own brother, the Messiah, the Son of God. And what about Paul? Paul doesn't even mention his name here. Paul had actually persecuted the church, caused the death of so many Christians. He blessed him, Jesus Christ. And so Paul really felt like he is the worst of all criminals. He says, last of all, I'm the last. Of course, I don't think he's saying that he's the only one who's the last because throughout the centuries after him, others have come. Others have played major roles in the kingdom of God. But in that era, I think he was right. He was the last. But he describes himself as one abnormally born. And the term here is ectroma. And it means literally miscarriage or abortion. He's like someone who was miscarried or someone who was aborted in the process of birthing these apostolic companies. It's actually a term of abuse, probably hurled at, at Paul, saying, you call yourself an apostle, you are an aborted apostle, you are a miscarriage, you're not normally born, you don't fit in the company. And so you could imagine how Paul felt, and you could imagine how he must have felt when Jesus appeared to him. After all these events of Jesus spending those extra 40 days having 500 people witnessing him and then him ascending into heaven and suddenly a number of years later he appears to Paul on a separate occasion. Why? And so Paul must have really felt somewhat exceptional but odd that he wasn't within the company of the twelve. He wasn't even among the company of 500 people who actually witnessed the resurrection. He had to actually hear from them, gather the data, and then he had to make his own exposition based upon what he, what he encountered of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so in verse 9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul felt so unworthy, so unqualified to be called an apostle. But you know what? He took a great pride in his apostleship. You see in all the letters, I, Paul, the apostle of Christ Jesus, that's how he usually titles his, his name and his identity. In all these letters. But because he committed a crime against Christianity, because he blasphemed the name of Jesus, he felt so unworthy. And yet the beauty of the message of the gospel is this. 
Verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. And he might even add, I suffered more than any of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Paul attributes to God's grace this power to transform him into a person who formerly was so zealous to persecute Christianity, now he is zealous to speak on behalf of Christianity. And he was so productive. Without Paul and his contribution in the New Testament, we are poverty-stricken. I love the Gospels. Four Gospels is all I need, I say, but at the same time, I need Paul's interpretation. And just this morning, I was telling my wife, Esther, when I'm studying Paul, and I, I've expounded on so many of his letters, I've already done all his prison epistles, you know, Philippians, uh, Ephesians, uh, Colossians, where you have this high Christology. I haven't done Galatians and Romans because I just accept what the Reformers have expounded on them. You know, the whole message of grace and, and faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here in 1 Corinthians, as I'm expounding this, section by section, every week, I am so profoundly affected by Paul's brilliance. How is he able to articulate things like this? How does he make it so balanced? How does he make it so holistic? How does he integrate these things? He didn't have word processes like we have. In order for me to write a book or prepare a sermon, I got this word. I'm constantly editing, 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 editing. Paul just had to write it once because the paper, papyrus, was so valuable in those days. You can't afford to waste them. You've got to have your thoughts in mind and articulate it, and then the scribe may jot them down, or he may jot them down on his own. And Paul has contributed so much. I think everyone knows that. That some scholars would say it's the Pauline gospel that has to supplement these four gospels. Of course, Paul never met Jesus during his three years of ministry. And so how could he come up with the gospel? Yet he does in his own way, in his original way. So I think Paul demonstrated what we might call true and proper response to God's grace. And that is by giving total allegiance to Jesus Christ and committing his entire life to him to serve his kingdom causes. That's how you respond to the grace. The great uh, German martyr, theologian and martyr, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a, a classic book called The Cost of Discipleship. That was one of the first books I ever read when I became a Christian. And he talked about grace being so costly, let's not cheapen the grace. 
And yet we see so many people saved by the grace of God. It's, it's an easy salvation. All you have to do is just give your life over to Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe and trust Him and receive that. That's all you have to do. Jesus does not demand anything. You receive it freely. And yet, what do they do with that grace? They cheapen it by living a life of immorality or disobedience, life of selfishness, life of godlessness. And then they have the audacity to say, well, I'm saved by grace. Once saved, I'm always saved. It's secured. I question that kind of mentality. I think I understand what they mean. Once saved, always saved. That kind of eternal security. I understand that. But the way it is abused, when people do not line up their lives to what amounts to great, costly grace of God, then we must be angry like Paul was. We must be upset about that. Another thing that I see here, what Paul is trying to say is, listen, our identity and our behavior and all the things wrapped up in the past they don't really amount much. No matter how great you were, no matter how lousy you were, actually, that's not the important thing. In this world, that's so important. Your track record, your spec, your record, your accomplishments, what you have done, that's so important in this life. And Paul says, no, that's not important because if that was important, then I'm dead. I'm damned. I have no hope and future, even though he was a brilliant man under this great mentor, Gamaliel, a Pharisee among Pharisees, amazing pedigree, and yet he turned against Jesus. The very truth, the very life, he turned against that. So his life was a, a complete disaster. And yet Paul has the audacity to say, doesn't matter. Because I am not me because of who I am. I am what I am because of the grace of God. And that grace of God was not wasted. It had a great effect upon me. Because I understood that grace. I understood that grace transforms me. If I understood the value of that grace, I am like that woman who broke the alabaster jar of perfume and, and that expensive perfume poured it at Jesus' feet. You're able to do that because you understand the grace of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what matters in any person's life is the divine grace and the divine call upon our lives which can transport us from our miserable conditions from our conditions that we have created for ourselves, deliver us and transport us into the realm of the kingdom of God so that we can truly get to work in the service of the kingdom. And this is what Paul is saying. So he can put himself down and say, I don't care if I 
don't belong to the 12. I don't care if I was not one of the 500 who witnessed the resurrection. I missed out on that. I don't care about the title. I'm abnormally born. I've been aborted. I've been uh, miscarried. I'm like the fetus rolling on, on the ground. Doesn't matter. Because he took that, that garbage of an existence like me. And by his grace, he lifted me up. He placed his calling upon me. He placed his spirit into me. He crowned me with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and lifted me up to the highest place to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And that is the only basis by which Apostle Paul is able to stand. We got to learn something from Paul. So many of us try to stand shoulder to shoulder with people of prominence in this world based upon what we have. In my case, the academic degree, that, that seems to speak volumes to people when they realize that I have a PhD or, or maybe my background or my heritage or my knowledge or my giftings or my spirituality. People say, wow. But Paul would not have anything to do with that. He says, I'm nothing. I'm the least. I am scum of the earth. I'm like a dung, a refuse. But it doesn't matter. Because by the grace of God, I am now who I am. An apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A privileged call. And because of that, I have all the motivation to work harder than anybody, to be willing to suffer more than anybody, to give glory to Jesus than anybody, Whatever the 12 apostles may say. He had respect for them, but I'm sure he had attention. Like, they're probably asking, who is this guy? He wasn't one of us. He didn't even witness the appearance of Jesus. And he comes around and says, I met him. He met me. I don't understand why. But it's true. I can prove it to, to you. Because I used to persecute the church. I used to be the evil, bad guy. I was, to, I was an enemy of God's people. But look at you now. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to speak on your behalf. I'm on your side. And I'm sure the original apostles were, wow, it took some time of processing. Thank God Peter was generous enough to you know, open the way. I'm sure James and John, they were probably very critical type, you know, like sons of thunder, right? You know? It took some time. But I believe gradually he won their heart because he proved it. He proved that God's grace was not in vain. It was not wasted. It had an effect. He produced. He developed. He emerged as truly a supreme apostle, that he can be placed in history, shoulder to shoulder, with any of the original 12.
Amen? And so, finally, he says in verse 11, Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. So if we're going to preach the gospel, you preach the gospel. You preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, centered on the cross and the resurrection. You preach that. And you ask people to believe that, to accept that. Because that is the only way to receive salvation. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.